the show you're about to hear discusses films, books, and TV shows in their entirety, twists, endings, and all, without fear of spoilers. So if you don't want to know who dies, who done it, or how it all ends, we strongly advise you switch off now. I'm Paul Tyler and welcome to Spoiler, the show which reviews movies, books and TV shows in their entirety. This week we're watching Quentin Tarantino's 2012 western Django Unchained. And just another final warning, we will be talking about the whole of the plot, we will ruin it for you. So if you've not already seen Django Unchained, go away and watch it now, then come back to us afterwards. Have they gone? Right, on with the show. Quentin Tarantino burst into our collective conscious way back in 1992 and since then it's been mutilated ears, decade-defining dance scenes, martial arts marathons, Nazi scalping and with Django Unchained, a western all of which have been treated to Tarantino's potty-mouthed dialogue-heavy scripts that have brought him as many detractors as he has fans which genuinely means he's doing something right What's your name? Django. Can you spell it? D-J-A-N-G-O. The D is silent. Django! Django Unchained stars Jamie Foxx as Django, set free from slavery by Christoph Waltz's absurdly charismatic Dr. King Schultz. I'm Dr. King Schultz. This is my horse, Fritz. A German travelling dentist turned bounty hunter of sorts. Do you know what a bounty hunter is? No. Well... The way the slave trade deals in human lives for cash, a bounty hunter deals in corpses. After joining forces for a while, the two gunslingers attempt to free, or rescue, Django's wife from a plantation owner in Mississippi, called Calvin J. Candy, played by Leonardo DiCaprio at his most monstrous. Gentlemen, you have my curiosity. Now you have my attention. If you came expecting blood, you're in the right place. But there are more shocking things about Django Unchained than over-elaborate, bullet-soaked scenes. The shocking portrayal of the cruelty of the slavers was given a lot of column inches at the time of release, as was the almost constant racist language. If it's brevity you're after, then you're in the wrong place. Writing for The Guardian, Mark Kermode stated that Buried inside the sprawling 165 minutes of Django Unchained, there was a two-hour retroploitation romp struggling to escape the indulgence of Hollywood's most under-edited auteur. And all I can hear is criticize, criticize, criticize. Roger Ebert wrote at length about Django Unchained, justifiably full of horror at the slave-fighting scene, but understanding just what its director is made of. He writes, When Quentin Tarantino begins a movie, I believe his destination is to aim over the top. The top itself will not do. He is a rambunctious sword, ain't he? <laughs> so, is Django Unchained over the top? Or do we sometimes need harsh reminders of the cruelness and indignities suffered by so many in the past to remind us not to turn our backs and let it happen again? Django! You open it, son of a... Later in the show, we'll be taking a look at the sometimes sensitive issue of real-life tragedies being woven into fiction. 
But first, joining me here to discuss Django Unchained in a brief, concise and completely free of foul language way, <laughs> I'm sure, are two people I have never seen riding a horse, Andy Goulding and Rachel Burnett. Hello. Hello. That was good. I was pleased with that one. I was really pleased with that one. I can ride a horse. Just but not. I've never seen You've it. You've never seen it? Yeah. No, that's fine. I've been on a donkey. <laughs> It's not quite the same. I've never been on a horse, never will. I mean, we like it. Um, we like a tangent on this program, but that one came about real quick. <laughs> okay. uh, right. So, Rachel, is a Tarantino flick your thing? And, uh, you know, I don't want to label you the sensitive one because I think we, you and I have the same level of sensitivity, I, 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 I believe. And this is, this is not a... Rachel was all sensitive and all that. Will she like this? Will she? <laughs> but I thought when I was watching this, I thought about you just in, in, in a way that we, we, we connect with that because I was looking away... In a way, I'm pretty sure you were looking. Were you? Tell me, do I know you well enough? Were you looking away? Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, I was. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. Andy. No, no, no. Rachel, Rachel. So, so when we talked about Tarantino, I can't. Oh, I always, you know, I always forget who brought this one up. Yeah, who was it? Johnny. Johnny. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, it was. yeah, yeah. Producer. The producer brought yeah. this in. Uh, you agreed to it. Yeah. No, I. I try not to shy away. I. I have watched Tarantino films, and I. I like them. I do. I've watched Reservoir Dogs, I've watched Pulp Fiction, and I, I did feel dread when you said you we're going to do a Quentin Tarantino. I thought, oh no, because that means I'm the choice is now not in my hands, I have to watch one. Mm-hmm. I always know it's going to be a challenge, and sometimes you just, just don't want to be challenged. You want to just watch a film and not think, yeah. oh my God, I'm dreading this, I'm dreading this. what's yeah. going to happen next. And the tension that ramps up quite a bit throughout, and it's not always, there's not always something that it leads to. Sometimes it's your own tension, and actually it didn't lead anywhere and it's okay. I did watch it all and I did get a lot out of it. I have really conflicting emotions about it. I'm still, it's still settling with me. I have, because it's very new and quite raw still with me. But there's a lot to be said about this film. Don't, you know, I'm not saying it's not a bad film at all. And some of the performances, I, I got my actory head on and thought, mm-hmm. some of the performances here, wow, you yeah. get, you're getting some good acting acting chops here yeah absolutely I mean I, so, I get sorry just before we bring you in here Andy yeah. it must have I, I get the feeling it must have stayed with you for a few you know well yeah. and obviously until now you know yeah. we're going to talk about it but I think even if we weren't talking about you to watch this film it would have stayed with you like two or three days at yeah. least afterwards just yeah. bits coming back and, 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 and triggering yeah so Andy uh, and I've written I've actually written this phrase down I wrote it down as a joke <laughs> right <laughs> uh, but I kept it in what do you reckon it's a great question isn't it um yeah uh, it's a mess it's i think it's uneven in tone and i think it's at least 40 minutes too long i think there's some really jarring choices of music in there and yet it's it's also quite frustrating because when it's good i think it's really good Mm. i think tarantino knows how to write and stage a gripping and an entertaining scene and he does it several times here. And not just like the violent set pieces that he's sometimes unfairly reduced to by lazy critics. There's some good dialogue scenes. There's some quite tender scenes even between Schultz and Django and uh, Hildy. But for all its good individual moments, I think it hangs together quite poorly. And the last 40 minutes for me just just feel like the director indulging his worst excesses at the expense of the credibility of everything that went before it. I think when this came out, Tarantino uh, gave some interviews claiming credit, or it, I think it was like about a year down the line when 12 Years of Slave started to garner some success, and he, he claimed credit for restarting the discussion about slavery in Hollywood. And the problem with that for me, apart from the fact that it's a ludicrously self-aggrandising claim, 
is that I don't really think Django Unchained has anything really to say about slavery. I don't think there's a lot of content in there. To me, it just feels like a revenge film that uses slavery and the fact that the audiences are going to have a negative reaction towards slavers as the catalyst just provokes strong enough emotions for us then to lap up the subsequent carnage. Wow. Mm. I, I think I agree with that. <laughs> I think I've been struggling to try and get a hold on it and I think you've just described it. <laughs> I think that's exactly it. It's really difficult when you're reading about it and the whole slavery issue. And I've watched films about slavery and I must admit I am a complete coward. I've read about it a lot. But whenever I've tried to watch documentaries or films, it affects me so deeply and I know I shouldn't turn away from it. And so I do force myself as much as I can. And I was really bothered, less about the violence in this as I was about the slavery undertones. But you're right. It's almost like just a bit of a background thing. I mean, it is something, but it's almost not enough. It's like, if it's going to be a slavery film, then make it about slavery. If it's not, then don't. It's, It's really odd. It didn't sit so pretty with me about that. It was like... I kind of know why you've done this. Like you said, the motivation for getting those emotions yeah. and those heightened emotions because you've already got this whole idea about slavery and things to, to build those emotions onto. But ultimately, it's a it's a buddy movie. It's also a revenge movie. It's a romance. It's about the evil of humans. It's all sorts of different things. And you're right, at the end as well, I kept thinking, is this going to be the end? Oh, no, mm-hmm. that's not the end. Is this going to be the end? Yeah. No, that's not the end either. Is this the end? And it just kind of kept tacking on just a little, oh, no, I'll just, I'll put this on as well. Like, oh, I've had another idea. I'll just pop that on at the end. And for me, it didn't just feel long towards the end. I think after an hour, I was, I mean, I I downloaded it onto my phone and I ended up watching some of this in a coffee shop. Oh, my God. I I was was in a corner. You know, obviously I put it in my mind that I needed to be in a corner. Um, against against the wall, but I, for about an hour, I, I, you know, again, I, I sat and watched this for an hour, but I was I was definitely sucked into it. And I, when I came out of here, I thought, oh, there's an hour. I've not I've not sat here and looked at other people and made up stories for their lives uh, <laughs> as as you normally do. Uh, and um, I've actually, you know, I've been sucked into. It. I think it grabbed your attention all the time. Did I mean, you know, there was there was no way your your attention was 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 coming away from it due to the. Well, comes to the language, I think let's talk about the violence first, I suppose. Mm. Uh, for me, it felt like there were two kinds of violence in this. I mean, just horrific, visceral, actual violence and also comical violence when you have those blood splats. That, yeah. so, so there's that that you come to expect when you've seen films like Kill Bill or, or well, any of them really. But then the actual, the visceral violence of the, I, I think probably the, the peak of that in the film for me was was the fighting scene with the two slaves fighting against each other for the for the slavers enjoyment or bets or you know they, however they did it you, 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 all that time you just try you're trying to put it out of your mind and I was thinking for a while that actually I thought that was reasonably well done in the, in that they they cut away so as in Reservoir Dogs horror of your own mind about what's going on when yeah. when you know the the ear hacking goes on. Um, is probably worse than actually if they showed it. I don't know, I don't know, maybe, maybe not. You know, uh, but I, I, when they turned the camera away in here, I thought, well, that's a trick they've they've used before. But it was still, I know there were some, still some snippets that, that were in there that were just, that, that, that brought it back. And I, it was just, atro- you know, just atrocious, really, mm. really atrocious. And I don't know, I, I have seen this before. And again, I, th- I you know, I think, if we hadn't been doing it for this, mm. I wonder if spoilers made me more sensitive or made me more aware of aware of things. I don't know, and I, I you know, I certainly don't think that's a bad thing. Or I've just turned forty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's maybe yeah. it's a forty thing. Yeah, maybe some people. <laughs> no, have... I've always been like this. Yeah. So the bit for me, yes, the bit with the two fighting men was 
that was a look away moment. But the worst bit for me and the bit that I can't shake is the is the man being ripped to pieces the by the dogs. Yeah. It's still making me feel a bit weird now. And and that was just I I couldn't bear that. I really couldn't bear it. That was too much. And it and that was snippets. You didn't really see mm. an awful lot, but it was the sound as mm-hmm. well. Yeah. The the screaming and the dogs snarling and things. It was too much. It was just Wow. And then the, then it was showed again when I wasn't ready for it as well, when Christoph Waltz was, rem- oh, yeah. was remembering. Yeah. And I thought, oh, God. And it really jarred me again because I just started to calm down from that. And then it was back in. If I was allowed, if I was going to turn it off, it would have been then. Mm. But I know why he did it. And it was abs- it was probably the, well, it was the right decision because it showed the absolute depravity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm, it's not even worth wasting a bullet on you. You're just dog fodder. And that was just, oh, my goodness. Wow. You see, I, I'm, it didn't affect me that much because, to me, because we'd had that earlier kind of more cartoonish violence, that makes it hard for me to then transition to seeing it as realistic. I see it as a just an extension of that. It didn't seem real to me because the whole film just feels like a genre exercise rather than it, the getting to grips with any realism. This is why, like, thinking about this and obviously thinking about you, Rachel, I thought, yeah, you'll probably be fine watching this, but not if we would watch in 12 Years a Slave, mm. because that instantly engages with slavery as a, a serious subject and it makes the violence all the more visceral because there's no element of cartoonishness or or there's no sense that there's any kind of uh, almost sadistic delight in some of the I mean I don't I don't know if that's fair to say no, I, I but that's very fair I think don't ever choose 12 years a slave because <laughs> <laughs> I won't watch it um yeah I mean that would be even worse for me I know what you're saying but for some reason I could absolutely cope with the splashes of blood because yeah. it's very Kill Bill it's very Japanese and um that didn't bother me at all I'm I'm not bothered by that because it was cartoony and I think it was it was too it was too much of a change for me it was too much of a switch from it's okay, it's cartoony, it's okay, it's cartoony. Yeah. Oh my god, they're real dogs and that sound and it's too real. And because there wasn't mountains of blood, I suppose maybe it mm. wasn't. It looked too real because it was cut into. I kind of got the feeling those are the sounds that you would hear if someone's ripped to bits. That that is what the dogs would do. That is the things that you would see. And it was like that's that's too real now. You see, I I, I struggle to see it as as real and when it comes in the same film where earlier you have that that scene of that kind of proto Ku Klux Klan mm. doing their comedy scene about eye holes in the bags mm. and it doesn't feel like those two scenes should be in the same film at all no it doesn't but, yeah I mean that was the more Mel Brooks style yeah it? yeah he turns saddles. into Blazing yeah. Saddles yeah. suddenly yeah yeah now Django Unchained's depiction of slavery seems to have attracted both praise and criticism in pretty much equal measure, like you can see here. Mixing <laughs> elements of real-life tragedy with fiction is always going to be controversial. Andy's been taking a closer look at the issue. When Quentin Tarantino unleashed Django Unchained in 2012, its combination of the black exploitation and revisionist Western tropes beloved of Tarantino the film fan with the extremely delicate subject of slavery proved to be too curdled a cocktail for some to stomach. Django isn't a slave. Django is a free man, you understand? 
Although the film received much critical praise and five Oscar nominations, it also received severe criticism for what many found to be a poorly judged attempt to blend moments of absurd comedy and cartoonish violence with such deadly serious subject matter. Look, nobody's saying they don't appreciate what Jenny did. Well, if all I had to do was cut a hole in a bag, I could have cut it better than this. What about you, Robert? Can you see? Not too good. Tarantino was, of course, no stranger to controversy, and his previous film, Inglorious Bastards, had focused on the persecution of Jews by the Nazis in World War II, another subject to which a director's approach can be key in not tipping over into bad taste. My name is Lieutenant Aldo Rain, and I'm putting together a special team, and I need me eight soldiers. Eight Jewish American soldiers. But with that film, Tarantino created an alternate timeline in which an assassination attempt on Hitler is ultimately successful, thereby disengaging with reality to an extent that, depending on your viewpoint, could be construed as a safe enough distance from which to manipulate what is now only an approximation of real-life atrocities. Nazi ain't got no humanity. They're the foot soldiers of a Jew-hating, mass-murdering maniac, and they need to be destroyed. That's why any and every some bitch we'd find wearing a Nazi uniform, they're gonna die. Still, legitimate questions can be and have been raised regarding the use of such sensitive subject matter in the creation of fiction, no matter how respectful it intends to be. Should the Holocaust or slavery be off limits to writers looking for subjects for their story, even if in the process the story attempts to say something about human beings that is intended to offer valuable insight in the hope of avoiding such inhumanities recurring? Though intention is key here, a laudable purpose does not always result in an entirely acceptable end product. In this respect, my mind goes immediately to Donald P. Belisario's sci-fi TV series, Quantum Leap, a show based around a strong moral centre, but which occasionally faltered in its admirable efforts to examine human relationships. The premise of Quantum Leap was that Dr. Sam Beckett, head of an elite team of scientists, theorised that a person could time travel within their own lifetime. Pressurised to prove his theory or lose funding, Sam prematurely steps into his machine and vanishes into the past. It all started when a time travel experiment I was conducting went... a little caca. Rather than time travelling within his own body, he awakens in the bodies of other people and finds that he can only move on from his current destination by putting right something that went wrong in the life of his host in that particular place and time. A sort of time-travelling Lone Ranger with Al as my tanto. When I offered a superb overview of 20th century history with lovingly recreated period details, Quantum Leap sometimes overreach when trying to tackle more serious issues, as in the season one episode, The Colour of Truth. In this episode, Sam leaps into the body of a black chauffeur in the American South in 1955. I didn't know exactly where I was, but it was obviously too far south to be a black man. While his official mission appears to be to save the life of his elderly white employer, Sam also believes he is there to kickstart civil rights in the town. You promised me you would lay low, save Miss Melney, and then leap out of here. I didn't know I was black. Even if I did, I got a right to sit at that lunch counter. No, no, in 1955 you didn't. Well, maybe I should have. No, Sam. And maybe that's why I'm here. No, 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 no. You're here to save her tomorrow, not to initiate the civil rights activity in the South. Well, maybe I could do both. Although it has good intentions and has long been celebrated as a series highlight, I've always had a problem with The Colour of Truth in that it seems to inadvertently attempt to recalibrate history to suggest that the civil rights movement was started by a white doctor 
merely puppeteering the body of a black man through the motions. The episode even mentions that its own events predate Rosa Parks' refusal to move to the back of the bus by a few months, implicitly suggesting that phenomenal act could have been influenced by Sam's fictional work here. And frankly, the image of a white, holographically projected man from the future, standing in a jail cell that cannot hold him, singing We Shall Overcome while smoking an enormous cigar, has too much wrong with it to even start dissecting. Of course, we know that Quantum Leap isn't claiming to be the same thing as real life, but the difficult question at hand is whether real-life examples of human history at its worst can ever be tastefully used as a backdrop for fiction. Marvel's popular series of X-Men films, for instance, shows the development of complex villain Magneto as being strongly influenced by his time at Auschwitz, where a sadistic scientist murdered his mother in front of him. The X-Men films revolve around a fascinating allegory for prejudice by way of the politically volatile relationship between human beings and mutants, but I've always felt uncomfortable with the presence of the real-life Holocaust as a plot point. The subject matter is not treated with disrespect, per se, and yet the juxtaposition of comic book supervillainy with a real-life instance of atrocious barbarism seems somewhat misjudged. X-Men's utilisation of the Holocaust as a method for bolstering the impact of fictitious tyranny seems to implicitly trivialise the horrors experienced by real-life victims of persecution. The worlds of the fantastical and the all-too-real do not mesh comfortably. I've been at the mercy of men just following orders. Never again. Likewise, attempts to mix elements of comedy with the concentration camps have received mixed reactions. Robert Benini's 1997 comedy-drama Life is Beautiful received much critical acclaim and seven Oscar nominations, including Best Picture, but several critics suggested that its tone trivialised the suffering of Holocaust victims, especially since Benini himself was not Jewish. Benini's intention was clearly not to mock, but his comments when interviewed by The Guardian's Brian Logan get at the root of the problem. To laugh and cry, said Benini, comes from the same point of the soul, no? I'm a storyteller. The crux of the matter is to reach beauty, poetry. It doesn't matter if that is comedy or tragedy. They're the same if you reach the beauty. Such tangled philosophical arguments just won't do when tasked with defending a Holocaust comedy, and Benini's focus seems to be on the artistic aesthetic rather than the ethical implications. Life is Beautiful is so swamped in chocolate box romanticism that when it switches setting from the picturesque Italian countryside to a concentration camp, it struggles to let go of the light touch of its first act, resulting in a muddily defined attempt to blend a fairy tale romance with subject matter that just cannot accommodate it. Sometimes artists realise their ambitious projects aren't working before they reach an audience. In 1972, Slapstick comedian Jerry Lewis directed, scripted and starred in the infamous Never Screamed, The Day the Clown Cried, a dark comedy drama about a 1940s German circus clown who is imprisoned in a concentration camp after drunkenly criticising Germany and mocking Hitler. 
based on an original script by Joan O'Brien and Charles Denton, who intended it to be a redemption story about a deeply unlikable character. Lewis reportedly changed the mood of the piece significantly to a Chaplin-esque comedy featuring a flawed but basically decent person caught up in terrible circumstances. This difficult balancing act culminates in the clown being employed by the Nazis to lead Jewish children, Pied Piper-like, to the gas chambers, and he is so ashamed of his actions that he follows them in. It's hard to imagine this devastating denouement sitting at all comfortably with any degree of comedy, even of the blackest nature. Lewis seemed to realise this himself, opting not to release the film because he thought it an embarrassingly bad work. Although copies exist, including one donated to the Library of Congress by Lewis himself, under the stipulation it not be screened before June 2024, The Day the Clown Cried remains one of the least seen items of cult obsession out there, evading even the grasping mitts of bootleggers. This is Spinal Tap and Simpsons actor Harry Shearer managed to see a rough cut of the film in 1979, and in an interview with Spy magazine in 1992, described it thus, Seeing this film was really awe-inspiring, in that you are rarely in the presence of a perfect object. This was a perfect object. This movie is so drastically wrong, its pathos and its comedy are so wildly misplaced, that you could not, in your fantasy of what it might be like, improve on what it really is. Oh my god, that's all you can say. As human beings attempting to fathom the complex subject matter of humanity at its worst, it is inevitable that we will sometimes come a cropper in terms of taste and good judgement. But there is one film above all that I struggle to forgive for its crass insensitivity and calculating attempt to appropriate a real human tragedy and the feelings it inspires in a cynical attempt to win critical plaudits and commercial success. That film is Alan Coulter's Remember Me, a loathsome romantic coming-of-age drama whose existence beggars belief considering how many hands the script must have passed through before it unfortunately reached our screens. As I'm going to talk about the ending of the film, this would normally be the point where I'd include a spoiler warning for those wishing to see it for themselves. But I'd like instead to advise people to let me spoil the plot for them now, rather than allow this piece of garbage to spoil your entire evening. We needn't look too closely at the full plot here, It's the sort of maudlin fluff that unfortunately dominates the teen romance subgenre, but which is largely harmless enough. I make it sound cheap. It is cheap. I've seen this scene a hundred times. The problematic moment comes at the very end of the film, when it looks like things might finally be working out for the central couple, Ali and Tyler. Tyler is waiting in his father's office, while Ali is at school. A teacher enters the classroom and writes the date on the blackboard. September the 11th, 2001. A shot of Tyler looking out of the office window then pulls back to reveal that the office is situated on the 101st floor of the World Trade Centre. Their romance is cut short by Tyler's untimely death in the subsequent terrorist attack. A shot of his diary amongst the rubble and Tyler's voiceover reading a passage about love and redemption aiming to squeeze the tears out of any hard-hearted moviegoer not yet crying. Remember Me was released in 2010 but it is not the off-wielded criticism, too soon, with which I intend to condemn the film. It's a perfectly understandable human impulse to try and process tragedy through art, and films like September and United 93 came out less than five years after the September 11th attacks. But crucially, these were films about 9-11, which stated their subject matter up front, 
Those who had lost loved ones or otherwise experienced the horrors of that day on a personal level could choose not to see those particular films. But Remember Me actively conceals its connection to real-life tragedy and implicitly implores its audience to do the same after they leave the cinema. It seeks to achieve its impact not only by reminding people of their reactions to an unspeakable event, but by trying to recreate some semblance of the gut-wrenching shock that went with it. You can't take something so devastating from real life and reduce it to the level of a plot twist. This isn't Luke Skywalker's parentage or the identity of Kaiser Soze. It's not something you can pull a sheet off and go, ta-da, please don't spoil the surprise for anyone else. To try and make 9-11 into a narrative trick is despicable and unbelievably insensitive to any audience member for whom the subject has deep personal significance. They should be able to watch an escapist romantic drama without fear of having the worst day of their lives unexpectedly thrown in their faces as part of a callous attempt to imbue an unremarkable script with some unearned dramatic import. To this day, this film sickens me. Whenever I see the words, remember me, staring from a DVD shelf, my reaction is, of course, but for all the wrong reasons. So, thanks for that. Now, firstly, uh, Quantum Leap. Quantum, quantum Leap, it seemed dated even when it was on. <laughs> Are you with me on that? Yeah, I, yeah, I suppose so, yeah. Uh, right, OK, now then, uh, I suppose what we have... We normally talk about this a bit earlier on, but I think we, we desperately needed to get some of the heavy stuff in there. Um, hey, Christoph Waltz. Yeah. Oh, come on. What did he get? He got supporting actor for this, supporting actor, actor for yeah. this didn't he? And I mean, so if we, if we push some of the other stuff to one to one side, that's deserved, isn't it? Absolutely oh, deserved. Oh, yeah, yeah. In fact, definitely. there's a bit of me that thinks best lead, really. Mm, yeah, yeah, I understand what you're saying. I do understand because I, I questioned it when I read it. And you just feel at once, at once, comfortable in his company. I, I, yeah. It's immediate. Yeah. No, he kept me going. He really did because I think... Without him, I wouldn't mm. have got through it. Yeah, yeah, it would have been too much, wouldn't it? Yeah. yeah. But he just had this way about him. It's so funny because I actually wrote down one of the lines he said was, uh, I kill people and sell the corpses for cash. Now, you'd think somebody that said that line, I'd hate the <laughs> But I loved him. And it's like, this yeah. is weird. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> Why do I like odd. this man so much? But apparently, uh, Christoph had said to um, Quentin Tarantino, he'd only do this part if the character was pure and if he never did anything negative. Mm. Which is true, he doesn't. I love the storytelling bit. Because I'm massively into storytelling. Yeah. There's that great bit with the fire and the cave wall. or And then Django sat there cross-legged. And he was this sort of wise teacher, this mentor. And I just thought, oh, I love this. And it kept me going. I was heartbroken at the end. Mm. Absolutely heartbroken. Because he was such a great... He was the storyteller. He was the narrator pulling us through the film. And just keeping our heart in there and making sure that we were, you know... He showed us what we were thinking. Mm. When we when he stood up when the dogs were coming, I was thinking, yeah, that's me. That's what I would do. Yeah. You know, you didn't. You sort of thought, yeah, there's a danger inherent in what you're doing, but mm-hmm. I, I know why you're doing that. Yeah. So um, yeah, he was fantastic. Just always always one step ahead, and just, just, just even a little gun up the sleeve as yeah. well. You think, oh, it's nice, nice little trick. <laughs> Keep one of those myself. Um, but with, uh, Jamie, <laughs> no, no. Um, Jamie Fox was it? Jamie Fox a convincing lead for you, Andy? Well, I think he he served the purpose. I think he did a Clint Eastwood in that he. I don't think he, he gives a great performance, but he has an incredibly strong presence about him. And uh, to be fair, I think Django's, as written here, it's not a strong role, really. 
And so I think Jamie Foxx made it a lot stronger than it would have been just with his incredible kind of sense of presence. I, I like Jamie in this. I agree with you. I think if you, if you ever saw the script... There wouldn't be much for him to go at, mm. really. All the good stuff came for Christoph. That's he had a great role to get into. Mm. But Jamie, I mean, what is there for him? But he I thought he did really well with what he'd been given. And we know he can act, we've seen him in other films, and we know that he's really good and he's got some depth. But he he did what he was meant to do, which mm. was to be this kind of force. Yeah. Which he definitely was. Well, other others in line for this, Will Smith. See, it would have been no. too Will Smith. Yeah, I don't think that would have worked. No. Um Idris Elba. Idris Elba. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I like. I, he's obviously a, a genius and a god, but <laughs> obviously, but yeah. Again, I can't see him. It's I hard can't to see imagine, him in this. isn't it? That's almost too much presence, mm. actually, for Idris. He's too big. But Cuba Gooding Jr. It was desperate to have this role. No. He's still mm. peeved about it now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I believe so. Yeah, calm down. Yeah, um, but no. Again, no. No, 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 no. So, that. so when you think about when we think about other people as we like to do, actually, Jamie Fox is yeah, yeah, was right choice for the, yeah, for the yeah. role. Yeah, I suppose another thing, and I. I'll come to the cinematography and the soundtrack shortly because they're, they're, they're key points for any Tarantino thing. As is, what I would also like to talk about is the language and the use of racist language uh, in this film. Andy, <laughs> uh, let's step let's step around this one. But uh, was it too? I, I felt it was. I felt it was too much myself. Um, I, I think it's as a working class white man from the UK. Have I got a right? Here's a good, good question. Have I got a right to be offended by it? Um, <laughs> I think I think it, it was too much for me, but it's more because I get a sense that it's not in there for authenticity so much as uh, Tarantino thinks it's cool. I mean, I'd, I used to be a really big Tarantino fan, and I hate to use the phrase I grew out of him because I think it's disrespectful to his many fans who very convincingly put the case forward for him. But I think there's definitely a teenage boy mentality in there and he definitely thinks guns are cool and violence is cool. Mm-hmm. And I think if he was going for authenticity, there wouldn't be as much use of that word here. I think that's just in there because he likes that. He has a strange obsession with that word and he's been pulled up on it quite a lot. And it's something that touches a nerve with him. He gets quite angry about it when people question about it. But yeah, I think it, I think it's too much. And it, it just seems to be in there like a, you know, like a schoolboy who's been told to stop that and so he has to keep doing it. I think there, there is definitely call for it to be in there as a word because it was used. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, the, the excess of it, is it's just smack exactly I thought the same as you I think Quentin Tarantino while talented in many ways is also very self-indulgent mm. and um and does believe himself to be much cooler than he actually is and by putting himself in the films as well I always oh. think just the ultimate really it's like you yeah. can't actually act yeah and you immediately bring the film back to being oh there's the director you've lost the story because we're all focusing on the fact that you're now yeah. in it and so he will actually sacrifice the film and its narrative in order to get a few minutes of screen time. So there is something about that teenage boy about him that I think he he won't sacrifice himself for the film and his you know love of that word, which he has used a lot, as you say, in other films. Yeah. It was too much. Definitely. And again, do you think it, it loses its impact? You know, it's like it's like any swearing, mm. isn't it, or you know, foul language. It, if you do it all the time, it loses its impact. Yeah. Mm. So while we're on we're on characters and. Leo, baby, little baby Leo. <laughs> um, I don't know when I'm thinking of a plantation owner, but then you know, I mean, I suppose he 
Is Leo any good in this? There you go. <laughs> oh, ooh, good face, Andy. Yeah, yeah, it's a shame yeah, that a face mm. can't translate down at my face. My absence of question, your absence of an- answer means I think we, we know where we're at here because, oh, come on, Leo is good. Leo DiCaprio is brilliant. Well, he, he is good. I think he, he probably gave Tarantino exactly what he asked for. Mm. Uh, so he probably did a really good job of, of following his director's lead. But it's a bit too scenery-chewing for me, a bit too boldly drawn yeah. and cartoonish. Yeah, I would totally agree with you. And I, I would say that if Leo was given free reign, he wouldn't have done it like that. Because there are, there are numerous stories about him feeling uncomfortable on set with not mm. just the use of racist language, but his aggression, things like that. And I think there was room for subtlety in some of that, which just wasn't there. Mm. And, you know, it's all very well. Yeah, he would have been. He was evil and horrible and everything else. But that's far too broad a, a stroke to paint him with. And... We know that Leo's capable of ex- really fantastically detailed, subtle performances. He's a brilliant actor. He's yeah. fantastic. And, I mean, just first rate. And he wasn't given the chance, I don't think. I agree with you. I think yeah. Quentin directed him, really restricted him into how he was going to play this. The only part when I thought Leo's almost become himself a little bit was was when he smashed the glass and got some blood on his hands. And there was a little bit of, now it's got into his paws a little bit. But it lasted like seconds, mm. <laughs> and then it went again, and I thought, "Oh no, you've lost it again." Did, because... you, did you read the same thing I did? Where that was actually real, where he just carried on. Yeah, yeah, I did see that. And the crew applauded him. Apparently, yes, I would have gone I, if it was Leo. I would have gone, oh, "Leo, <laughs> stop the scene." <laughs> <laughs> but, um, no, he's he's just capable of so much more, and I th- I think I think that's really indicative of how Quentin just has this idea in his head, and he shall not be swayed on it mm. because really he should trust somebody of that caliber. Trust him, you know, because Leo will have done something really unusual and different and really effective, and but he was never given the chance. Well, Jamie Foxx was uh, uh, interviewed about working with Tarantino and said that he was quite kind of tyrannical on set and oh. was very kind of, uh, he knew what he wanted and he wanted it exactly that way and he, on his first day, he dragged Jamie Foxx off into a room and he yelled at him and... But Jamie Foxx said by doing that, he got what he wanted out of him. He got him into the role and he knew how to play it. And he said that he would work with him again in a heartbeat a thousand times over. So, mm-hmm. See, when I get my acting role in, the, in, in something like this, right, what will happen is that some director will drag me off into a room and shout at me. And that'll be it. I'll go. I've gone. I've gone. It's probably why I'm not. And actually, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, We're a bit too uh, demanding already. Some, I know. Some, <laughs> some piece of trivia. Oh, I love the trivia. Some piece of trivia came up, and in one way, I started to feel, all oh, right, okay. And then I went back again because it's interesting that Schultz kills twenty-three people, Django kills thirty-eight people, approximately. <laughs> Candy kills nobody, but does instruct two people. But you still know that he's the he's. You still know he's the evil one. There's mm. still the lot. You know, there's, there's more to it than meets yeah. And but you're right about that. And that I think that fact means that there could have been a lot more subtle about that. You know, that, about those exact things. You know, you two yeah. people are coming here killing everybody you see, mm. and you know, there, there, there's more subtle subtleties too. I'm certainly not trying to defend the uh, <laughs> defend Candy or, or, or the slavers, obviously, but it's still, there's, you're right, Rachel, about the, the subtleties and the things that Leo could have brought to that uh, to that character. But I th- there, are, there are some things, and I'd, love, I'd like to go into the cinematography and the way it was shot, because there are scenes in this that are just astonishingly good. 
just the way the camera's set. Now, I don't know, is that is that Tarantino or does he have a really good cinematographer with him? I don't, I don't, I don't know this. I've not looked. Um, um, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I think he does have the image of what he wants things to mm. look like inside because he's it's very important to him that that kind of uh, cinema history and he makes very direct references to certain films from the past and he's he's done that I think through most of his career and sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't and like Death Proof Death Proof I thought was an awful film and that was shot in a kind of uh, mock old film kind of way it was meant to be like a a kind of trashy drive-in film I think that film I thought was so bad and the elements of that have kind of seeped into the films that he's done after that because in the same way he tries to evoke uh, like this is it tributes to some like black exploitation films of the seventies and things like that, and uh, it's strange to have that kind of direct attribute in a film. It it feels almost like it it's shackled from being its own thing. It's constantly saying, "Oh look, this looks like this film," or like from the opening credits, they immediately look like something from the seventies, mm. and it's really well evoked and really beautifully done. But it, to me, it kind of neuters this film's I- mm. identity. Yeah, I think so. I just think some of the... I mean, I'm going to call them filler scenes. You know, the, the in-between scenes when they maybe they're riding horses across the plane, things like that. Yeah. Some of those scenes, I thought, were, were just... Out, out, oh, they, yeah, they look amazing. They look really good. But also, when we first introduced to Calvin Candy, when we come into the room, the camera comes into the room, and you're left over the other side of... We, 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 us the audience are left that side of the room as well so we've just come in and I really felt that was really strong very mm. good filmmaking yeah. in that you know I, I, we're in, we're now in this environment I thought that was really well well done you know so th- this is always the frustrating thing isn't it I think with, yeah. with Quentin God, we know he can do it <laughs> yeah I said if you could just sort of pluck bits out of that film and then stick them together and take out the bad bits you could make a far better film mm. it's a bit like I always think he's a little bit like J.K. Rowling <laughs> Go with me on this. Insofar as right, by the time here. by the time it got to Order of the Phoenix and the final couple of books, she was so powerful at that point that nobody would edit it, and it really needs a good edit. Or the last three books need a damn good edit, but nobody dares do it because it's J.K. Rowling, it's Harry Potter, nobody touches that. There's there's not allowed to be mm. an abridged audiobook version of it because it's, <laughs> she won't allow it. I feel like Quentin's in that same sort of thing. Mm. He's too powerful. He needs somebody to come in and go, no, take that bit out. It doesn't work. Do this, do that. Have you tried this? But nobody dares do it. Mm. Right, so um, jumping back to characters. And uh, hey, Rachel, I'm surprised you don't brought this up. Um, Stephen. Ugh. 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 I mean, is it is it well played or is it all just... Ugh. Yeah, I think it was reasonably well played because I wanted to just him to just keel over and just disappear or die or do something horrible because <laughs> it's so awful. I think it's just something about seeing somebody turning on others is just in such a malicious, deceitful... Oh, he was just horrible <laughs> and he ruined everything. <laughs> and why couldn't you have just let them go? It's just, oh, it was awful. And I just, I could not get my head around that. And it, I, oh, <laughs> it makes me do those noises. No, no, I know. I, I think I felt the same. I was making those noises, but I do think, I think is you need conflict there, don't you? You, do. you need, you know, you need conflict in the story. And yeah. there it was. Yeah. And, and characters, you know, people actually did exist like that. You know, yeah. there were there were people, the Uncle Tom characters, who yeah. you know were like that. It's hard to get your head around, but it's it it definitely existed. But just seeing it, it's like, 
oh, look, they were so close. If you just hadn't said anything, <laughs> what did it matter to you? Mm, yeah. <laughs> I actually thought Samuel Jackson was really good in this role because he was, uh, I, I didn't think of it being Samuel Jackson. He mm. kind of transformed quite a well. lot. Which is unusual, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. normally Samuel L. Jackson plays Samuel yeah. L. Jackson, which yeah. is generally you're, mm. you're happy about seeing. I, 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 it's not a... Well, it is a criticism, but it's not It's not mm. as harsh as maybe as it sounds because you go, oh, yeah, good, mm. easy, that's right, <laughs> everything's all right. And also credit to the makeup artistry and the wigs yeah, on that one yeah. because the physical transformation was really good too. It did look too. old, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, it really did. So, but yeah, it was it was really well played because to bring that kind of emotion out of me that makes me go, yeah. you know, that's a good performance. Mm. I mean, part of the, the Tarantino odyssey. Is <laughs> the right word, odyssey? No, why not? Yeah, I like, <laughs> I like the word, whether it's relevant or not. Go for it. Is... The soundtrack and the music and, you know, so very much since since Reservoir Dogs is, is, is part of it. Although I don't think he's hit that height again, maybe. But, well, maybe Pulp Fiction. Mm, yeah. yeah, good soundtrack, yeah. 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 Who's that? Uh, Girl, You'll Be a Woman Soon. Who did that? That was... Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, I'm going to go and play that. I'm, be- I'm busy. <laughs> I'm going to be very busy. It's tonight. a good soundtrack CD, that one. Yes. Really good. Yeah, it is. Um, but how about... Never mind that. How about the soundtrack? <laughs> uh, how about the soundtrack to this? I mean, we mentioned earlier that there was uh, some rap in there, that, which I felt was out of place. Yeah, but, so did mm, I. Me too. Yeah, way yeah. too modern. I mean, I know he, he was aware of that, putting yeah. it in, but it, it just again, it pulled me out of it. Mm. It was... Yeah, it's really uh, jarring, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the and right obviously, word. we expect some modern music, but not that modern. It was like, whoa, hang on a minute. Mm. No. I, I would have been happy with just an original score. Yeah, no, I mean, no like, pop songs shoved in there. Just yeah. for, It seemed like he felt it was quite a clever thing to do, but it didn't work for me. It might have done for some. No, it didn't for me either, to be honest. I've actually put that with a big star next to it. Too modern now. <laughs> Don't bring rap into it. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I got yeah, I got quite frustrated at that, especially when you've got access to Ennio Morricone. It's like, what are you doing? Yeah. You I, know, you've got one of the supreme composers ever and you barely let him do anything so I suppose yeah. it, maybe it was kind of a was he trying to make a point of its relevance to modern day yeah, society it didn't quite work though, did no, it? not for no, me anyway no. and it certainly was placed in a time I mean Quentin revealed at Comic Con that Jamie Foxx and Kerry, Kerry Washington's characters Django and uh, Broomhild I love, I love saying that word <laughs> we talk about how this has stuck with us over the last few days just that word and the yeah. way that Christoph Waltz <laughs> well, said it all the time Broomhild yeah. um, every now and then I'd catch myself saying just in my head Broomhild <laughs> most peculiar really really peculiar um, anyway their characters were meant to be the great 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 grandparents of John Shaft from the 1971 film Shaft I, I read that come I thought on, really come on <laughs> she's called Broomhild von Shaft Yes, it's just unnecessary, isn't it? Yep. There's little bits of (laughs) self-indulgence are just not necessary. Yeah, yeah. It's too jokey. It's too like, no, this is a serious thing. Stop putting little in jokes Mm. in it. It's it's too serious. Stop it. It is. I mean, maybe you need to see Twelve Years a Slave. No, (laughs) I read the. I read half the book before I just got too overcome and had to stop Mm. reading it. But it's not something you should ever turn away from. However, you also have to know your own limitations. Yeah, yeah. It's not something you should force yourself no. to no. sit through either if you can't no. on a visual level. No. One thing that I want to bring up, just that I find myself slightly uncomfortable with in general, is, is revenge films. Mm. I mean, in a way, any film with a baddie and you're waiting for them to get the conference. So, but films that are specifically just building up a figure to then take revenge on at the end and that's the whole kind of arc 
does it perpetuate a kind of eye for an eye culture in that we we create someone to hate so we can then take violent revenge on them? Yeah, it's not a, it's not a great message for the kids, <laughs> is it really? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, as, as you say, though, it's right. I mean, justice would have been better than... But there was, but there is no justice, I suppose. No, in, no. in that period yeah. of time, you know, you can't. Yeah, I mean, that, that's actually the, the frustrating cycle of it, isn't it? There's no, you know, there are there, there is no justice to be brought because it's it's not achievable. So, I was just about to say, it does have to be violent, but it, does it? That's not the way history was changed, was it? Through no. through, through no. violence, it was it was changed through power and words and people, you know, sort of standing up. I suppose. Yeah, it's a bit strange. Are there any revenge films that you think do work? Um. In films that aren't just entirely revenge films, when there's, like, a bit with a bully who then gets their comeuppance, I usually really enjoy those bits. Mm. Uh, and I'm worried about what that says about me, really. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm waiting. To, I'm like, oh, I hate that character, but I know they're going to get their comeuppance later, so I'm really looking forward to that. Mm. And I'm, I'm worried that that's... Uh, <laughs> Because it's it's some it's not a real person. It's someone who's been created just for the sake of doing something to them later. Yeah. Mm. Well, you're right. Might might this have been a braver film if they didn't get revenge in the end, or mm. or they just escaped, or, or everybody died. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so would we have felt satisfied if they just escaped and just left the plantation, didn't blow it up? Mm. Don't know. It would have saved us that awful last 40 minutes that's very true <laughs> <laughs> um, so well we're, we're now at the ending so where, where did they go next where, where you know I mean the hassle wouldn't have stopped for them there would it Goodness you know no. I mean crack if they'd not seen uh, one person of colour riding on a horse now there, there he is there he is with his wife mm. but hey you know he was Django he had a bullet he had a gun up his sleeve he did he had, he could he had achieve, lots of skills lots could of achieve <laughs> anything I think they went off bounty hunting that's mine yeah so yeah, I, I think yeah, that would, that's exactly what they did I'm sure. To be honest, I, I have trouble thinking about it because I think that they're, they're too thin a characters to... Uh, mm. I think they just blow away at the end. Because it's... <laughs> yeah. uh, I don't see... I don't imagine it carrying on. It's no. uh, particularly... I mean, much as I dislike that last 40 minutes where it's turned into a bloodbath, I absolutely despise the last sort of minute or so of this. When he does that big grin to the camera and then they have that little... hey little troublemaker hey big troublemaker mm. exchange and then all that ludicrous showboating on that horse oh. and I mean the first time I saw saw this I thought that's it I'm done with it <laughs> and then I'm glad we did this again because I, I watched it and I did enjoy again the same bits as the first time but I knew that was coming and even with the prior knowledge that it was coming it still ruined it for me I still I ended on a note where I thought, I don't like that film because no. that is just stupid. <laughs> <laughs> well, for our rating this time, you're going to have to forgive me for this, but, you know, is it Tarantino? No. <laughs> oh, so I'm just, I can't forgive I you for this I know, if you're going to say what I think you I'm looking say. down, I'm looking down. <laughs> I can't look you in the eyes when I say this. I've written two things here. Or is it Tarantino or a guaranteed yes? Or is it... Tarantino, yes. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. It's just awful, it isn't it? Why, I know, I know. <laughs> spend the rest of the evening not looking you in the eye. Um, well, it's a no, isn't it? it much, <laughs> much as it's, I liked some of it, it yeah. is a no for me. Yeah, well, I'm, put it like this, I'm not going to watch it again. Yeah. Much so as I, I can see some merits, I'm not going to watch it again. So, to answer the question, are you going to watch this again, you need to say Tarantino. <laughs> 
Tarantino. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, that was it. That was the, 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 the last. However long we've spent discussing this, I, I, I can't believe I got that right. Oh, fantastic. Right. Okay. Well, thank you so much for listening to us. It really means a lot that you download, and we know that you're downloading in more and more significant numbers. Yes. Uh, and we're really thrilled. So that must mean some of you are talking about us in some really kind ways. And for that, we thank you very much. We thank Rachel. We thank Andy. And of course, Radio Academy Award nominated producer uh, behind the glass uh, and uh, we say goodbye from this British Podcast Award nominated programme and not before we leave you with the genial fresh mouthed Andy Goulding back in the early 90s during lunch hour and playtimes the schoolyards were abuzz with talk of reservoirs and canines whatever crowd you hung with and whichever room you went in the conversation was about some fellow known as Quentin Though we could glean from context it was not for under 12s, we still resolved we had to see this movie for ourselves. And so your older brother, under merciless duress, acquired us a copy on a crackly VHS. The day we watched that video, it changed us for the worse, for our differing reactions hit our friendship like a curse. You thought it was a masterpiece, and I thought it was trash. And on this point, for years to come, we violently would clash. Things only went downhill when Tarantino made Pulp Fiction, When Jackie Brown rode into town, she caused yet greater friction. As our friends sat uncomfortably, reduced to awkward silence, you'd shriek, Aesthetic genius! And I'd yell, Mindless violence! With venom-tainted spittle flecks, our faces would be sodden. As I hollered out, Misogynist! And you screamed back, Postmodern! And as our feud continued into Kill Bill Volume 1, we failed to even notice that our other friends were gone. A few hung on and hoped we could agree to disagree but by the time we got to death proof, there was only you and me. Debate is good, and differences are cause for celebration. Too late we learnt this lesson, lost in blind exasperation, and so we laid to rest our feud on Quentin Tarantino. For in the end, my dear friend, what the hell do you and me know? Like the pine trees lining the winding road I've got a name, I've got a name. You've been listening to Spoiler, hosted by me, Paul Tyler, with Andy Goulding and Rachel Burnett. Our theme music was composed by Ron Butcher. I've got a name, and I carry it with me like my daddy did. But I'm living the dream that he kept here. If you've enjoyed the show, please do tell your friends about us. Share links to the podcast or write us a nice review on iTunes. Five stars would help too. Next time on Spoiler, we're taking a look at the classic Paul Newman prison drama, Cool Hand Luke. What we've got here is failure to communicate. If you'd like to contact us, you can email hello at spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Find us on Twitter or Facebook, or go to our website, spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Spoiler is produced by Johnny Hall and is a Joe Schmo production. The show was recorded at the studios of Siren Radio in the heart of the beautiful cathedral city of Lincoln. Look, y'all, I'm going home. Moving me down the highway, moving me down the highway. Pass me by.